started tonight, I want to let you know we're going to be doing a, a pretty sizable review here on the front end because there are some aspects of last week's study that I want to remind you of or, 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 or at least uh, refreshing you with for the sake of where we're going tonight. So bear with me as we do a bit of a review this evening. I want to start by reminding you that in this study of how we got the Bible, we have, we have a few, there it goes, we have a, a, a few areas of focus that we have to address in order. We've dealt with inspiration already and looked at, at evidence for the inspiration of Scripture now we're in the midst of a section that I call transmission. It's an examination of how God's Word has been preserved and passed down over the centuries. We're going to be involved in this category of study for a little while longer as we try to ascertain the, um, uh, the, the as we try to examine the manuscript evidence we have and the, the uh, excuse me, the manuscript evidence we have as well as um, other factors that contribute to the reliability of our New Testament in particular. That's our focus as of right now. We have to remember that in this process, we don't have the original documents of the New Testament or the Old Testament for that matter. We do not have the, the original autographed copies of each book of the Bible. So what we have are copies of the original that have been passed down through generations, and those copies are going to be called manuscripts. A manuscript is any document that is written by hand. So we have handwritten uh, documents, copies of the text of Scripture that we work from. And there are over 5,800 Greek manuscripts, in part or in whole, over 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and over 9,300 manuscripts of other languages related to the New Testament. And I showed this graph last week. I'm not going to spend much time on it this evening. just want it to be up there again. Because it compares the New Testament manuscripts to manuscripts we have of other ancient documents. Such as uh, Homer's Iliad and, and, and uh, Tacitus's history and, and so on. And one thing that stands out is that we have a massive amount more documents, manuscripts, I should say, of the New Testament than any other ancient work. Or that, and not only that, we have manuscripts that date closer to the composition of the New Testament than we do of manuscripts that date to the, the originals of other works, like the ones pictured on the screen. This chart... Uh, illustrates well how substantial the manuscript evidence is for the New Testament. And when it comes to the New Testament, the fact that we have documents that are so close to the original writing of, the, of those books is amazing. But we have to understand how we're able to date manuscripts. See, what we're doing right now in this stage of our study is we're examining some important principles related to these manuscripts, some important factors related to the manuscripts. And one important factor is that age matters. Manuscript age matters. The older the manuscript, 
The closer it is to the original document of the New Testament, the more likely it is to be accurate. I mentioned last week that you've probably played the, uh, as a child or in a group, played the telephone game where you whisper in someone's ear a statement and then it gets passed around whispering in each other's ear all around the room to see if the same statement will come out in the end. So if I went over to James and said something to James and he passed it on throughout the room and everybody had to whisper it to their neighbor, can't do it, That's, that, that, it's COVID time, we can't play that game. Because um, we, we have to, you know, social distance here. But if we were to do it, the likelihood of it coming out over here on Ken's side, the way that I originally spoke it, is not incredibly high. But the further back you go in the chain of events, the higher probability of having an accurate rendering of what I said would be. And so the older a manuscript is, the more likely it is to, to be closer to the original. That's the basic premise uh, of textual criticism to some degree. And we looked at various ways you can determine the age of a manuscript. You first look at its material, what it's made of, papyrus or vellum, vellum being animal skin. And papyrus is traditionally going to be older than vellum, not always, but uh, that's a rule of thumb. Another way you can gauge age is by looking at the font, whether it's, called, whether it's an unseal or a minuscule. Unseal is all capital letters, minuscule is lowercase cursive letters. And an unseal uh, will be older than a minuscule, typically. You can also look at the punctuation, whether or not there are spaces being used, commas, periods, and such employed. That can help determine the date of a manuscript as well. If there's no spacing, for instance, like the example at the top of the screen I used last week, no spacing between words, that's an unseal. That's an all-capital, no-spacing document. And typically, unseals are going to be older. Uh, excuse me, typically, documents with no punctuation are going to be older than documents with punctuation, because punctuation was introduced at a later stage. And so, we can also look at ink. The earliest documents were typically written in all black. Colors were introduced into newer documents, and so that's another factor in determining the age of a manuscript. And then there's also the decoration, because uh, there's a period in which more ornate um, uh, manuscripts uh, come into play and fade out, and that can help us in dating a document as well. And then after we kind of talked about manuscript age, that's an important factor with manuscripts, and it helps us value certain manuscripts above others. Age, age creates value to manuscripts. So we wanted to look at some of, the most, some of the most important, most valuable early manuscripts we have. And I'm going to run through these papyrus real quick again. We did this last week, but... They're going to get mentioned later, so I want, you, I want to familiar, uh, make you familiar with them again. The oldest manuscript we have is only about three and a half inches squared. It's a fragment from the book of John, from John chapter 18 in particular. It's written on front and back, and it dates to the early 2nd century. So somewhere in the first half of the 2nd century, between A.D. 100 and A.D. 150. This is called the John Rylands Papyrus. And it is the absolute oldest manuscript in our possession. Next to that, we have what's called the Oxyrhynchus papyrus. 
which also has a segment of John chapter 18. You can also see the deteriorated state of that document. It dates to about A.D. 150 to 200. So in the first century after the writing of the New Testament, we have these two early documents related to the Gospel of John in particular, which was quite possibly one of the last Gospels, one of, if not the last Gospel written, and possibly even late in the first century. So in the second century, you have these two documents that have been recovered from the, from the first, second century, I'm sorry. Then there, the, there's another uh, papyrus from the Oxyrhynchus collection, and it's called uh, P104. It is dated to that second half of the second century as well, 150 to 200. It contains part of Matthew. From there, we then get into the Bodmir papyrus. This one has the Gospel of John. This particular papyrus is Gospel of John dating to around 200, so the start the end of the second century, start of the third century. The Bodmir Papyrus also has this in its collection. It is a, a, a document that contains Jude, first and second Peter. It dates to the early third century, so the early 200s. And then you also have this. This is P75. It contains a big portion of Luke and John. It dates to about 175 to 225, somewhere in that range. So all these papyrus so far are dating uh, in the 2nd and early 3rd century. We also have the Chester Beatty collection. Uh, this particular papyrus has uh, portions of the Gospels and Acts in it. Uh, it likely, it, it, this is part of a codex, and a codex is a book. It's when you take several papyrus leaves or vellum leaves and put them together to make a book, a codex. And this one dates to about 250 A.D., this other Chester Beatty papyrus dates from about 175 to 225 and contains uh, many of the Pauline epistles, not all of them, but many of them, with some portions absent or missing. And then, of course, we've got this one, this piece of the Chester Beatty papyrus that it has the book of Revelation, or most of it, dating from about 250 to 300. So all these papyrus date very early, very close to the original documents. These are the ones we reviewed last week. Now, from papyrus, we then start transitioning into the vellum manuscripts, the animal skin manuscripts. And we didn't talk about these last week, so I'm about to slow down and focus on this information because I want you to know about the most valuable vellum manuscripts that we have. And all of these are going to be referenced as codexes, or codices, I should say, because all of these are in book form. The, the oldest one is called Codex Vaticanus. Can anybody guess where this codex is stored? The Vatican. Now, this is a fascinating uh, codex because it is one of the uh, oldest in our possession. It dates uh, to about the 300 to 325, so early 4th century A.D. And, of course, it's named for its location in the Vatican Library where it has definitely been housed since 1475 A.D. At least that's when it was first cataloged in the Vatican Library. It could have existed there longer, but that's when it first got cataloged. Now, here's the issue, though. This codex, which is so important and so valuable and is one of the most important documents for de um, determining the Greek... Uh, the, I lost my word. The Greek text. I, I lost the word text here. The Greek text of the New Testament. This is one of the most valuable documents for that. 
it was not published for broad consumption until 1889-1890. Now, a few individuals had gotten to go look at it and make some copies of it over the years, but for the masses to have access to it, not until the late 1800s. These dates kind of matter because they affect how we understand our New Testament and particularly our English translations. But Codex Vaticanus didn't become massively available until the 1800s. Um, it has 759 leaves of vellum written in the Greek unseals that we've been talking about, those all capital letters, and is considered one of the, 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 one of the great unseals. Now, it contains the Old Testament, though it's missing some portion of Genesis and Psalms, and it contains the entire New Testament. Oh, I shouldn't say the entire New Testament. There are only a few books missing from the New Testament. It doesn't have the pastoral epistles, so 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. It doesn't have Philemon, and it doesn't have Revelation. But it has the rest. Next to Codex Vaticanus is Codex Sinaiticus. Now, this codex was discovered at a Greek Orthodox monastery at, can you guess where? Mount Sinai, or the traditional location of Mount Sinai. This document was not discovered until 1844. Now think about that. This is one of the two most important codexes we have, this one in Vaticanus, and it's not even found until 1844. And if you ever want to research the story behind the founding, the finding of this particular document, it is fascinating. There's a guy named Tischendorf in the 1800s who is a, a textual scholar of the Bible, and he goes to this monastery. He's looking for ancient manuscripts, and while he's there, he discovers that they're using the pages of this manuscript to make fire. He ends up rescuing it, has to make a couple more trips to get the entirety of it, and uh, it's now housed in the British Library. But it dates... Not found till 1844, it dates to about 330 to 360 A.D. It is extraordinarily valuable. And it's considered one of the top two documents we have when it comes to the New Testament. After Codex Sinaiticus is Codex Alexandrinus. Uh, this codex is actually named for where it is believed to have originated, which would be Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, it was first mentioned that I know of uh, by Cyril, who brought it in 1621 to Constantinople. And then he gave it to the British ambassador so that he could then in turn give it to James I of England. Now, what is James I of England known for? Bingo! King James Version. But this particular codex didn't arrive until 1627 in England. What year was the King James Bible translated? 1611. So they did not have access to this in time to do their translation, which is kind of sad. But just to give you some perspective, uh, so Codex Alexandrin Alexandrinus has 773 vellum pages. It's four volumes and it contains um, most of the New Testament. It lacks some sections of Matthew, John, 2 Corinthians. Uh, but other than that, it 
has the majority of the New Testament. It's dated to A.D. 400 to 440. After Codex Alexandrinus, the next big one is Codex Ephraim Rescriptus. This codex is called a palimpsest. A palimpsest is a manuscript or a piece of writing on which the original writing has been effaced to make room for later writing. Let me put that in simpler terms. That means that this document is a form of ancient recycling. At one point in time, the text of the New Testament was written on this document. And then somebody decided they needed this paper, so they tried to wash the ink off, or did for the most part wash the ink off, and wrote something else on top of it. But the original content was still faded underneath the new content. And it was found, and they were able to go through and recover the, uh, the text of the New Testament, or the text of the Bible, uh, from that uh, erased, semi-erased text underneath it. It's faded, but it's still able to be uh, read. Uh, the faded biblical text was translated in the 1710s. Uh, the text itself, or the document itself, uh, is dated as early as 345 A.D., but most will say it's around 450 A.D. when it was probably written. It, too, is Greek unseals and consists of 209 pages believed to have originated in Egypt and is now stored in the National Library of France. Next up is Codex Bizet. This is the oldest known... Oh, I've lost my spot. It is the oldest known bilingual manuscript of the New Testament. The way this works is Codex Bizet has on the left side of a page the New Testament or the text of Scripture written in Greek. And on the facing page, on the right side, it's written in Latin. And so you, you have two different languages of the text right there so you can read it simultaneously. This uh, particular manuscript was found by a scholar named Theodore Bizet. Um, let's see here. It was dated to about 400 A.D. It only contains parts of the Gospels, Acts, and a few verses of 3 John. But it has kind of a partner codex. This is Codex Claremontanus. It is also a bilingual manuscript with Greek on the left side and Latin on the right side. It's a kind of a complement to the one we just mentioned, Codex Bizet. Because where Codex Bizet has the Gospels and Acts, Codex Claremontanus has Paul's epistles and Hebrews. Some of Romans, some of 1 Corinthians are missing in the Greek, and some of 1 Corinthians and some of Hebrews are missing in the Latin. But this dates to about 550 A.D. It too was uh, known to Theodore Bizet, the guy for whom the previous one was named, and it consists of 533 leaves of vellum, likely known before 1582 or by 1582 A.D. Finally, there's one last one. Codex Washington Eainus. Anybody want to guess where this one is? This one is in the Smithsonian. You can go look at this one with ease. 
It dates from the 4th or early 5th century, so somewhere between 300 and 500 A.D. It was purchased by Charles Freer of Detroit in 1906, and he ended up giving it to the Smithsonian Institute as part of the Freer Art Gallery, I believe. It can, Codex Washington, Washingtonianus contains the four Gospels. That's it. 187 leaves of vellum. But what makes this particular one unique is not just its age, but also its order of the Gospels. It goes Matthew, John, Luke, Mark, which seems so weird to you and I because we're used to the more normal order. One, two, three, four. So that is our six major codexes. These are the six major vellum documents that date to the earliest time period. If you notice, all of these range from about 300 A.D. to 600 A.D. All the papyrus we looked at were in the um, dating from about 100 A.D. to about 300 A.D. And then we look at these codexes, they go from about 300 to 600. After that, you get into a mixture of manuscripts. You'll have some papyrus, some unseals, some minuscules. I'm not going to show you any minuscules because uh, minuscules are manuscripts. As we've mentioned earlier, they're written in the smaller cursive-like letters. They debuted ultimately in the 9th century A.D., so the 800s. So they're later manuscripts. They are not as um, esteemed as the papyrus we've looked at or the codexes we've looked at, but they are useful in helping us recognize textual families of manuscripts. And that's where we want to transition to this evening. We've spent our time thus far looking at the major manuscripts, the major early manuscripts, though there's 5,800 different Greek manuscripts, and we've looked at seven codexes and a handful of papyrus. So obviously there are plenty more manuscripts that could be, exam could be discussed and talked about and examined, but they are not uh, conducive to our particular realm of study at this time. I wanted to show you the most important ones from the earliest dates because, as we've pointed out, manuscript age matters. That's one key component of understanding the New Testament manuscripts. Another key component is understanding that manuscript family matters. Now, I need to explain what I mean by family. A manuscript family is a group of manuscripts that possess the same or similar text of Scripture. So, when you have a manuscript family, what you have is a collection of papyrus, unseals, minuscules, that all read basically the same way. Now, the fact that there's more than one family means that our, our New Testament manuscripts do not all read exactly the same. Now, that's scary when you think about it. How do you know you have the exact text of the original Bible if all your manuscripts don't read exactly the same? Well, we're going to talk about that over the next couple of weeks. But the first thing I need you to understand is that we have these groupings of textual families. They're also referred to as text types. And that means that these documents that are of this text type 
they all agree in their reading, for the most part. And these documents of a particular text type all agree in their reading, but it's a little different than that reading over there. There are three major text types that we need to be familiar with. Um, the first is called the Alexandrian text type. The Alexandrian text type is considered the oldest and most accurate manuscript family. Now this is why I needed to review all of those major documents because I want to show you where they fall in the text families. So under the Alexandrian text type family, you have the John Rylands papyrus, which is the oldest manuscript that we currently possess. You have the Oxyrhynchus papyrus, the Bodmer papyrus, the Chester Beatty papyri, the Codex Vaticanus, Codex Sinaiticus, and Codex Alexandrinus, but only with Codex Alexandrinus does, it have, does Acts and the Epistles fit into the Alexandrian text-type family. And finally, that Codex Ephraim Rescriptus, the one that had, was erased and written over. All of those documents, so that's four of the seven codexes, that we, codices that we looked at, and all of the papyrus that we looked at, all of them are categorically linked to the Alexandrian family of texts. This text group is often referred to as the critical text. That's because it's viewed as the, the uh, best Greek text family. And one of the ways, that, or some of the ways they're able to identify the Alexandrian family is through a variety of methods. I'm going to tell you just a handful. And one thing to keep in mind as I'm going over all this text type information is that I'm giving you the most simplified version of it. There is a whole science out there called textual criticism that has scholars who spend their whole career understanding the differences between manuscripts and how they relate to one another and how we can... Uh, comprehend what is the most accurate reading of any particular text. And I'm oversimplifying what they do with this study tonight. But in the Alexandrian text type family, here are a few major distinctions. Grab your Bibles, we'll look at a couple of these in person. But one of the, one of the ways the Alexandrian family is unique is in its abruptness, the Alexandrian family will often have an abrupt end to something. So turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. Now, when we began this series of classes, we made reference to Mark 16 and noted something significant that happens there. But in the Alexandrian text family, you will not find the last half of Mark chapter 16 particularly beginning at verse 9 and going through the end of the chapter. And so in the text of your Bible, you are likely to find either uh, probably some sort of inserted parenthetical statement. In the ESV, it says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. That's because the Alexandrian family does not have Mark chapter 16 in their text excuse me, Mark chapter 16, verse 9 through 20. The Alexandrian family instead ends the gospel of Mark at verse 8. Now read verse 8 with me and notice how abrupt 
of an ending this is to a gospel. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Boom, done, that's it. When you're looking at the text of an Alexandrian document, that's how it ends Mark. That doesn't seem like a very good ending. It didn't wrap anything up. They saw that Jesus wasn't there, and they left, and fear and amazement overtook them. Where's our resurrection stories? Where's the, you know... So the Alexandrian uh, grouping, or the Alexandrian family of texts tends to have abruptness to it. And one example of that appears here in Mark chapter 6. Another factor of the Alexandrian text type family is that it tends to use fewer words. And it's the belief of scholars um, that, that the, the fact that this text family uses fewer words is an indication that other families of text add on extra words for more explanation. So let me give you a couple of, of real quick and simple examples of how fewer words are used by the Alexandrian family. If you look at Matthew chapter 15 and verse 6, which I haven't gotten there yet, so bear with me. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 6. Um, would somebody with a New King James Version read out loud Matthew chapter 15 and verse 6? So you'll notice in Matthew chapter 15, verse 6, reading from the New King James, which I know our online participants could not hear, but I encourage you to get on the internet and do a comparison yourself. But at the start of Matthew chapter 15 and verse 6, you have this reference to one of the Mosaic, one of the Ten Commandments, the honor your father and mother one. And you'll notice that, that it, it does make reference to both father and mother. Hold on one second. I lost my place. <laughs> Not all English translations include the phrase or mother. That's because it is not present in all Alexandrian text types. It's an, it's an example of how the Alexandrian text family will sometimes uh, have shorter statements than others because... Just by saying honor your father, the implication is you know the entirety of the command. There's no need to keep writing or mother type mentality behind this. And so that's one example of how it can be a little bit shorter. It's not a big example, just a simple little illustration. Let me give you another one. Luke chapter 11, verse 4. Luke chapter 11 and verse 4. Here you have the model prayer. And at the end of the model prayer, the last verse of it says, this is English Standard Version, I want you to point out if you notice something different from the, what I'm reading, from what you're reading. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Did you notice a difference with your translation? 
What did you notice? Yes. If you were reading King James or New King James, I think those are the two that, that have the difference. Both of those will say, you have the phrase, but deliver us from evil. That is not present if you look at other English translations or, or, or many other English translations. There are probably others that still do have it. This is another example of how the Alexandrian family omits a phrase that, that, in comparison to other manuscripts. Now, we come across a variance like this. It shouldn't shake us to our core or anything, because notice, on both of these examples I just gave you, it doesn't change the overall understanding of the passage. It doesn't affect theology or doctrine or salvation in any way, shape, or form. We're going to spend some time, particularly next week and possibly in future weeks, looking at several different ways in which Scripture has these variations in it, and we're going to examine them to see how um, dangerous they are or really how not dangerous they are. But this is an example of how the Alexandrian family likes to keep things a little bit more brief and less wordy. Another way in which the Alexandrian family is unique is it emphasizes variation between the Gospels. Now what I mean by that is other textual families like to make the Gospels line up really well. In other words, the way a story is told in Matthew, they want it to be very similar in Luke as well. And so copyists might make some edits over time to make them more harmonious or to make them more um, in sync, more parallel to each other. So you're here in Luke chapter 11. Look at verse 2. When Jesus began the uh, model prayer, Luke records him as simply saying, Father. If you skip over to Matthew chapter 6 in verse 9, where Matthew's version of the model prayer is recorded, it's a, you probably know it by heart. How does Matthew begin the model prayer? Father what? What was that? Father in heaven. Father in heaven. Now, that's not a significant difference. But what happens in other textual families is they take Luke's account and they add the phrase in heaven to make it consistent with Matthew's account because they don't want the discrepancy. They don't want the difference to exist. But in the Alexandrian family, they're not, it's not a, it typically is okay with there being a difference because that just makes the text its own in each gospel. Let me give you another, one final example of a unique distinction about the Alexandrian text type by going over to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. One thing the Alexandrian text type tends to do is allow difficult statements in Scripture to be present. Other textual families, over time, scribes have a tendency to lessen the difficulty of a passage, to make it less uh, complicated for our, for our ears and to make it less uh, um, offensive to our ears. So in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. 
Now, what's interesting about this particular passage is that in the Alexandrian text family, it retains the information about the sun not knowing the day or the hour. Just that one three-word phrase that we have in English, nor the sun. In fact, my Bible, maybe yours does too, my Bible has a footnote that some manuscripts omit nor the sun. What happens in other textual families outside of Alexandrian family is that they have omitted the phrase nor the sun. And it's believed that that happened over time because the presence of it infringed upon the doctrine of Jesus' omnipotence. And so to make it less complicated, some scribes or copyists over time chose to eliminate the phrase so it didn't conflict with their beliefs about Jesus' omniscience as part of the Godhead. But the Alexandrian family, which is the earliest attested family, the one with the uh, documents dating closest to the first century, retains this phrase over and over again. And so all of those examples are just examples of how the Alexandrian family is distinct from the other families. I know this is kind of complicated, maybe even a little difficult to wrap your head around, but I want to keep going and talk about the second textual family, the Western text type. Now, the Western text type is primarily associated with Latin translations of the Greek New Testament. You will not find an English translation based on the Western text type. The Western text type has been useful for comparing with the Alexandrian family, but the Western text type is not the predominant one. In fact, if you consider the notable early manuscripts that we talked about earlier, the papyrus and the codices, only two of the codices are categorically Western. Codex Bizet and its complementary codex, Codex... I can't even read that from here, so i got to get closer... Uh, Clara Montanus. Those two codices, which are complementary of one another, they are associated with the Western text type. And remember, these two codices are the ones that were bilingual, Greek on one side, Latin on the other. And so this Western text type is typically associated with Latin translations. Now, one way that makes, or one thing that makes the Western, or I shouldn't say one thing, a couple of things that make the Western text type, text family, unique or distinct. One is the order of the Gospels. Oftentimes, as I alluded to earlier, there's a rearrangement of the Gospels. Codex Washington, Washington Anus, or whatever it was, falls in this category uh, as far as its order as well, where you put Matthew, John, Luke, then Mark. The order of the Gospels is a, is a distinct characteristic of the Western text type, and so is some omissions. For instance, the Western text type has uh, these West, they're called non-interpolations. In other words, these are sections of the scriptures that are consistently omitted. Just go to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, and there are these little phrases, occasionally entire verses, but mainly little phrases, that for some reason the Western text does not include. And they are pretty consistent on omitting just these little phrases. 
it's almost as if the Western text likes to paraphrase a bit more. So in Luke chapter 24, you start in verse 3, and the phrase, of the Lord Jesus, is omitted. It doesn't really change anything. It's just not included in the Western text. Look at verse 6. The phrase, He is not, there, not here, but has risen, is omitted. In verse 12, the entire verse is gone. Verse 36 omits the phrase, And said to them, Peace to you. Verse 40 omits the entire, is, is completely omitted. And then verse 51 omits the phrase, And was carried up into heaven. And verse 52 omits, omits the phrase, Worshipped him. Now, I ran through those really fast, but for some reason, just in this one chapter, you have seven different phrases omitted consistently in the Western text. It's things like that that help to spot such differences in textual families, and that's an example of it for the Western text. Now, one other major text type, one other major family, it is called the Byzantine text type. Now, we've looked at Alexandrian, Western, and now Byzantine. When we talked about the Alexandrian, that was the oldest manuscripts. That was considered the best Greek text. The Byzantine, conversely, is considered the worst. But here's the issue with the Byzantine text family. We have more of it than any other family. The Byzantine text type is sometimes referred to as the majority text because the majority of Greek manuscripts are from this family. And this may make you think that this family should be the most important group of manuscripts, but the problem is that they have very few manuscripts from the early centuries. In fact, there are only six manuscripts of the Byzantine text type earlier than the 9th century. Only six before the 9th century. And then it explodes. This means that this text family primarily derives from late manuscripts. And because of that, it is deemed less valuable than the Alexandrian family. It does have one early manuscript of note, the Codex Alexandrinus that we mentioned earlier. However, it's only the Gospels from that Codex that are considered part of the Byzantine family. The Pauline Epistles, Acts, all of that is considered Alexandrian family, but the Gospels are considered Byzantine. And that happens. Some manuscripts have a mix of families in them based on sections of Scripture. You have to understand that when the New Testament first circulated, it didn't, didn't circulate as an entire 22 book, I'm sorry, 27 book catalog. It would be broken up. Typically, you'd have the Gospels as one book that circulated. You'd have Paul's epistles as another book, and you might have Acts as its own book. It would be divided up because of space. I mean, you think about a codex using the, the papyrus or vellum to write these documents. Um, they can't do the small, with those all capital letters, and you can't make it as fine a print as we have with our Bibles today. So you have these large, bound volumes that are heavy and are awkward. So you'd have it split up between Gospels and Epistles and things like that. So 
what happens is when you start compiling codexes is you might get one textual family for the Gospels and another textual family for the Epistles. That seems to be the case with Codex Alexandrinus. But that's the only one of the um, early manuscripts of note that we've focused on that would categorically be in the Byzantine family. And here's the thing. There's only six. Six manuscripts prior to the 800s A.D. that fall in this family. That's very limited evidence from the earliest days of the New Testament. Now, think about this. What makes this family distinct? Well, the Byzantine family likes to smooth out the Greek language of the New Testament. So look at John chapter 6 and verse 49. John chapter 6 and verse 49. Now, this is not something you can see in the English that well, but I'm going to use the English to make the point. In John chapter 6, verse 49, we read this. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. Now, Greek doesn't care about syntax like we do in English. But what's interesting is the Byzantine text has a tendency at times to change the syntax from what the Alexandrian family would have. And so in John chapter 6 and verse 49, the Greek syntax of the most prominent Alexandrian text-type codices essentially is this, in the wilderness the manna. The, the eating verb came prior to it. But in the wilderness, the manna. That's a weird syntax. That's not structurally sound for you and I. But that's how the Alexandrian family uh, writes it in the Greek. The Byzantine family spun it around a little bit. And the way it's written in the Greek for the Byzantine family follows this order, the manna in the wilderness, which is much more comfortable for you and I. Now, you can't pay attention to the English on that very well because English and Greek being two very different languages, what happens is that the Greek language, which really doesn't care about syntax all that much, when it translates over into English, sometimes you have to move the words around to make it make sense for us. You know, we, we love subject predicate. Greek doesn't care. Greek will start a sentence with a verb and end it with the noun, it doesn't matter in Greek. At least not all the time. And really the syntax change doesn't change the sentence at all for you and I. It's just an illustration of how the Western text has a tendency to smooth out the order of the words or smooth out even some of the grammar. Another distinction of the Byzantine family is that it um, is less likely to keep a difficult passage. It's more likely going to try to smooth out contradictory or difficult issues with the text of Scripture. So I got, there's one really great example of this if you go to Mark chapter 1 and verse 2. Mark chapter 1 and verse 2. You'll notice here at the outset of Mark, there's a prophetic quote given. And Mark begins by saying in verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. 
And he goes on to quote prophecy. If you really look at your footnotes, if you have a Bible that will actually um, cite what texts the prophecy comes from, one thing you'll notice is that he does, in fact, quote from Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3 to be specific, but he's also quoting from Malachi, from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Now, the text of the New Testament, the Greek says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, then goes on to quote both Isaiah and Malachi. That seems to be a contradiction, doesn't it? Shouldn't it, shouldn't it say, as Isaiah says and as Malachi says? In our English minds, that would be preferred. Well, the Byzantine family is kind of like us. It doesn't like the existence of a quote from Malachi that's attributed to Isaiah. And so what the Byzantine family does is it omits the name of Isaiah. And it just says, as it is written in the prophets. So it smooths out the difficulty of the reference to Isaiah, but, but a quote from Malachi. That's typical of the Byzantine text family. And so that's one reason why it's not as preferred as the Alexandrian family. So, all of this is a lot to consume, but let me boil it down very simply right now. There are different families of text in the new, that, among the manuscripts that we possess. They have been categorized by scholars over the years, and the preeminent family is the Alexandrian family. The reason it's the preeminent family is because it is the family of textual language consistently found in the earliest manuscripts. The Byzantine family, though the most numerous, is the one that has the most spurious versions of the text, the, the, the stranger versions of the text, the, difference, the differences from the Alexandrian. And so even though there are more manuscripts that are Byzantine, it's the less valuable manuscript. But even though there are differences between families, those differences help us figure out what the original text should be. And that's what we're going to look at next week. Next week we're going to start looking at textual variants. I don't even want to get started on it, even though I've... Actually, I'll start with this. The fact that we have multiple families means that we have variances, differences between New Testament manuscripts. Between the 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, there have been counted 200,000 variants. Now, does that scare you? It shouldn't. Because here's how they count variants. If a single word was misspelled in 3,000 different manuscripts, they are counted as 3,000 variants. So if the same word is misspelled in 3,000 manuscripts, misspelled the same way, that's 3,000 variants. So that number 200,000 is not nearly as scary as it sounds. It's kind of a misnomer. On top of that, the variants that do appear in the manuscripts of the New Testament, they appear in only about 10,000 places. And only about one-sixtieth rise above the level of 
I can't even read the word there, trivialities. (laughs) And what's most important is that none of the variants affect any of the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. It's usually a misspelled word or a change in the order of the sentence. Various things that we've seen tonight, they are very minor things. In fact, when a comparison of the variants that appear in the New Testament, or when a study of them is done, I should say, when a study of the variants is done, it is, has been determined by numerous scholars that the New Testament text is 99 plus percent pure, meaning unquestioned, undeniable. It's just that's less than 1% that, that is affected by variance. We're going to look at those variants next week. Um, and we're going to walk through some of them, and we're going, to exp- we're going to expose how some of them happen. You have to remember, the text of the New Testament, for quite some time, was handwritten. And I don't know about you, but I can make a lot of mistakes when I'm handwriting. But the beauty is, when you have 5,800 different manuscripts to compare you can kind of figure out what's going on. And we'll, we'll explore how that is and, and why that is next week and in the weeks to come. So I know I threw a lot at you, and it may be challenging your faith right now. But don't worry, we're going to walk through it because the goal of this study is not to challenge your faith, it's to build it. And we'll get to the point where it's doing that again. Let's uh, close out in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another night that we could come and study. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the ability to be able to examine it critically and and to understand and and realize just how valuable it is and just how worthy it is. May you bless our continued study and, and, and may this class only build our faith in you and your word. Lord, we ask that you be with us as we leave here, be with those who are sick, be with those who are traveling, and Lord, may we be able to return to assemble together you this Sunday. Lord, we love you, and may everything we do bring glory to you. It's through your Son's name that we pray.